Hi, everybody, and welcome to No Country. My name is J. David Osborne, and that is Chris Sacknessum. Chris, how are you doing this Monday evening? I'm well, David, although I didn't get my vocoder up and running yet, so I can't talk like a robot yet <laughs> or a child, you know, but yeah, I, I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm working on it, you know. Man, sometimes when I call it. you through whatever glitch is going on with AT&T and the technology that we use, Sometimes I do talk, you pick up and you're like, mm, hello, David, how are you? You know, it's, it's very strange. It's like, oh my God, did some robot kill Chris and is wearing his skin around like a suit, you know? <laughs> uh, maybe I'm just, you know, one of my alter egos. I, I, I just haven't shut it off, you know? Yeah, I you just know, picture like- this android with like wearing your face covered in blood, poking absently at a steel drum. You know, just <laughs> what is the what is this that humans use? Is this for oh. entertainment? So, I've never answered in my Lord Rumbly voice, though, have I? I have no idea what that is. So, no. Oh, he's one of my alter egos. He's sort of based on Prince Philip, and he's uh, he he says a lot of things that I could just could never get away with. You know, no. Prince Philip, the late Prince Philip, just was just wonderfully incorrect about everything. You know. Mm-hmm. Uh, Oh, good afternoon, you perfectly awful people who all smell and have flies hanging about them. Thank you so much for meeting our plan. (laughs) You know, that kind of thing. (laughs) It's great, man. Pictures of Prince Philip uh, before he passed away, with all due respect for the dead. Well, maybe not to Prince Philip, but he. did you see pictures of this guy? He looked like the living dead. It It was really shocking to see pictures of him well he was pushing a hundred of course and but if you've you you really owe it to yourself just to google on some of his classic moments of just i mean you can't call them social ineptitude because i think he was absolutely intentional mm-hmm. um but he dresses down everybody mm-hmm. from the elton johns of the world to presidents to you know heads of state to awful british celebrities to everybody you know mm-hmm. he just digs in and uh and sometimes i mean i think it's very very funny mm-hmm. uh, i i think he had a good sense of humor but you know he was always kind of under a weird sort of spell i mean i thought he looked dead 50 years ago yeah well you know? probably he is you know we're joking about androids killing you and wearing your skin but it wouldn't surprise me if that's not a very cogent metaphor for what's going on with a lot of elite people and heads of state you know there's that conspiracy brain popping up again but you know i mean there's um there's a lot of mythology around elite people you know drinking the blood of the young that's a very common trope in uh many conspiracy circles and of course, you know, you hear that and you think, oh God, that's just, that's nonsense. But recently, about a month ago, an article popped up in Newsweek that said, science has shown, there's our favorite word, right? That's our favorite phrase, science has shown, that right. you can utilize the the blood of the young to regenerate dead cells. And the article went on to discuss how uh, wealthy Beverly Hills socialites have been attending blood parties where they've got IVs full of uh, young people's blood, I guess, that they get transfused into them. And I'd known about, um, I'm not sure if it's saline or 
some other kind of concoction. But I do know that a popular pastime in in these kind of circles is after a night of hard partying, you know, cocaine and booze and whatever else. The morning after, before brunch, you'll go to one of these doctors who hooks you up to a an IV that's full of different electrolytes and minerals and things like that to kind of recharge you after you've depleted all of your stores. So they can just add a blood bag to that and keep it moving. I, I think that's Keith Richards' day every day, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, yeah. <laughs> exactly. You know? And it, it's, you know, you think about the whole vampire mythology, which is kind of... Uh, I mean, it's linked to the werewolf mythology, but it's very different. And you have to think, well, where does that come from? And I think we're, we'll, we'll get into sort of some of these topics later in this episode about that, you know, weird fantasy, horror, folklore, fairy tale ideas don't come out of nothing. And I mean, it makes perfect sense in a way that if you did want to stay young forever, I mean, I don't think you have to work too hard as a script writer to get around to, to drinking the blood of the young, mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm, really. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think you have to eat them. No. Uh, <laughs> that's go, know, that's that going too far. Going, <laughs> yeah, yeah, that might be frowned on. Plus, I mean, there's no sense in eating them because then you won't have, you know, It'll just be one sort of banquet yeah, style one serve, and, done. Yeah. and then they're gone. Yeah, right. Yeah. Right. Whereas the blood, you know, you can just have a, you know a little top up from you know mm-hmm. a little cocktail, a little smoothie, mm-hmm. kind of a power smoothie to keep you going. Yeah, beets and blood, um, man, beets and blood. Um, fun fact for any writers listening, by the way, Dracula is in the public domain. So if you want to include Dracula in any short stories, screenplays, or novels that you're writing. You can do that with no fear of being sued. The character of Dracula right. is public. Or Bram Stoker. Yeah. Oh, okay. Or his estate. Yeah, yeah. But okay, speaking of feeding on the blood of the young, I'm going to talk uh, very briefly about the young feeding on the blood of the old. So I'm talking, of course, about my son, Gus, uh, and, <laughs> and uh, raising this guy. I wanted to do a little Gus update. So yeah, maybe we can have some baby music that I'll ask Andrew to put in there. Um, so Gus is doing great. Uh, thanks to everybody, by the way. Almost every piece of fan mail or correspondence that we get in some capacity mentions Gus. So it's very appreciated, appreciated that you are uh, curious about him. He's doing very well. He is talking now. When Chris and I started the call, I was carrying him and he was pretty vocal. He, I think he wanted to talk to you, Chris. He did. He was. Yeah. He was. Yeah, so he's vocalizing. Some of the games that we enjoy currently are Peekaboo, classic. Uh, sticking out the tongue is a big one. So I'll, I'll stick my tongue out at him, and he'll stick his tongue out at me. I heard uh, I was eating chicken today, and it's very gross, but I was making loud chewing noises, and he found that delightful. It was the first time today that I heard a full-on... Uh, belly laugh from him, which was great. Um, <laughs> and then I said, "You like you like when I eat chicken? Okay, I'll have to do that more often." Um, but yeah, overall, he's doing great. He's getting a lot of visits from his grandmothers, uh, where he is showered with attention. Uh, when I'm here, I'm getting more and more adept at carrying him in one arm and sort of pecking away at my freelance editing jobs with my other. And uh, 
it's amazing the kind of uh, feats of dexterity you can pull off after just two months with with an infant, um, because they're constantly moving towards danger, right? If there's an edge of the bed to roll off, or you know, an arm to fling themselves from, they'll they'll do it as soon as they get the uh, the impression that they can. Um, so yeah, that's our that's our Gus update for the week, and thanks everybody for uh, for asking about that. I'm I'm really enjoying being a father, even the even the tough parts. You know, I was up late last night uh, because he had a little bit of diarrhea, um, and you just you know. As a new dad, I uh, I had my shoes on. I was in DEFCON 1. I was ready to to, to go to the hospital with that, and uh, Rios talked me down off the ledge. And I thought to myself, well, David, you know, you occasionally get diarrhea when you eat something that doesn't agree with you, so you just hydrate, and you eventually get better, and all will be well. So I just, you know, I monitored his temperature, and... Uh, carried him around and uh but there's there's something very alarming about seeing an otherwise rambunctious uh, bouncing baby boy who's just kind of lethargic you know uh set me on edge man it really did well i think that's perfectly normal you know i think that's just a natural uh reaction and i you know i think even people who you know have multiple kids and have been through that it, it kind of is an instinct program, you know, really. Yeah, um, right. And providing, I mean, I, I have known people who've just gone just completely burko, mm-hmm. and any little thing sets them off. But I think when, I, when I've thought about those people uh, pre-parenthood, they were like that about everything anyway. So, uh, right, yeah. You know, it's kind of... Um, it's a little bit of a mirror, I think, of a lot of your deep inner programs, some of which we're all aware of, and and some I don't think so much, mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. because there is that physical danger thing. And just, um, I mean, imagine just, you know, a little bit projected for the, when, when mobility is even, you know, more on the cards. I, I mentioned... I've my my neighbors uh, close at hand have a toddler, and uh, I've been put in kind of nominal charge. Not really because the mom is just so on the case when we all go out walking in the park. But he he can dash. I mean he he'll, he will fall over. Mm-hmm. But but if you take your eyes off him. And and the park is good because they're it's like a you know it's a little bit like the dog situation. Mm-hmm that there are no cars you know you don't have to worry about that kind of thing falling over on the lawn just makes him laugh Mm -hmm. and gus is probably you know going to be like that just kind of hearty and not scared of anything and just out there and engaged in life as long as you don't have things that they they just can't understand yet Mm -hmm. and traffic i think is the biggest uh fear for everyone i mean i i'm still a little bit afraid of of traffic rightly so of, you know you know looking around i i live on a, a curved street that leads into a big boulevard and whether you're driving out or if i sometimes cross the street to take photographs of the mountains and it's very tricky because where people park there's a blind spot 
And I think to myself, that blind spot is the most dangerous thing in my neighbor. It's not any of my neighbors, even, you know, when there have been some weird ones. It, it's that traffic thing. Yeah, so yeah. a lot of the, a lot of what you're, you know, going through, I think, is just preparation for, you know, managing ongoing, um, you know, those key issues of hold hands when you cross the street, mm-hmm, you know. Mm-hmm, I mean, mm-hmm. <laughs> those basic lessons, it's just... It's 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 a miracle, really. It really, truly is, and uh, I'm so glad you're getting as much day to day contact with it because I think a lot of dads, you know, traditionally a lot of dads didn't have that at all. So no, that's true. Good. That is good that all is, around. That is very true, and that brings up something that I wanted to talk about. As a side note, uh, I didn't get spanked a whole lot as a kid, but the one time I not the one time, but <laughs> one of the times I did was my mammal who uh, grew up in a family of sharecroppers in Louisiana. So she has that just bizarre strength that that comes from working in those environments from childhood. And I, <clears throat> we were in a minivan, and I threw open the door and jumped out, and uh, there were cars coming by. And I recall my feet not hitting the pavement because uh, she grabbed me by the collar of my shirt, yanked me back inside, and gave me three swift ones. And... Uh, it was, it was startling. I had a, I had a respect for her, and still do to this day after that, you know, because she that was the only time she ever did that. But I always look both ways now, which is more than I can say for some people around here who I think have a death wish. Um, but yes, so what you're talking about, the fact that fathers often uh, go out and make the money while mothers typically have stayed home and taken care of the home... Uh, has a lot of relevance for my life because my situation is interesting. So Rios works at a bank and she has really good health insurance. I'm actively attempting to get her home from from that job by sort of increasing my, my freelance workload because I can do that from home. And as I previously said, even though taking care of Gus is a full-time gig, I've found little ways to sneak in edits as I go along. But because of that, I am currently in the stay-at-home dad mode of caretaker for the home. And I do this podcast, I write fiction, and I also edit. So I'm I'm involved in a lot of artistic pursuits while taking care of a two-month-old boy. And I was talking to an author friend of mine, his name's Grant Meyerhofer. He's a great writer, very experimental type guy. Uh, He's also a dad. And he sent me the manifesto of a woman named Mirla Laterman Ukeles. Uh, apologies if I'm not pronouncing that correctly. But uh, Ukeles was the artist in residence for the New York City Sanitation Department in the late 1960s. It was an unpaid position. And she caused a bit of a scandal in the art world by crafting these works that utilized trash uh, to suggest a kind of... Uh, Venus of Willendorf, kind of voluptuous uh, Cthulhu Lovecraft being, right? Just kind of these oozing pustules of round, fleshy bags of trash. Uh, It's kind of hard looking at those artworks today to see what all the fuss was about. But back then, I guess, maybe people were more uh, easily ruffled. Their feathers were more, more, more easily ruffled. But about two years into her career, she had a child, and she became a stay-at-home mother herself, and she crafted this manifesto 
about uh, well about making what she calls maintenance art. So it's about three pages. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but there are some sections towards the front that I think uh, work really well as kind of poetry, but also contain some interesting ideas. So you want to hear them? Sure. Cool. All right. So this is under uh, heading one ideas. So we have subheading A, the death instinct and the life instinct. The death instinct, separation, individuality, avant-garde par excellence, to follow one's own path to death, do your own thing, dynamic change. The life instinct, unification, the eternal return, the perpetuation and, all caps, maintenance of the species, survival systems and operations, equilibrium. Subhead B, two basic systems, development and maintenance. The sourball of every revolution. After the revolution, who's going to pick up the garbage on Monday morning? Development. It's <laughs> <laughs> good, right? Development. Pure individual creation. The new. Change. Progress. Advance. Excitement. Flight or fleeing. Maintenance. Keep the dust off the pure individual creation. Preserve the new. Sustain the change. Protect progress. Defend and prolong the advance. Renew the excitement. Repeat the flight. Show your work. Show it again. Keep the contemporary art museum groovy. Keep the home fires burning. Development systems are partial feedback systems with major room for change. Maintenance systems are direct feedback systems with little room for alterations. And she goes on. I encourage people to, to read it. Essentially, what she made her life's work after that was turning the act of, of maintaining, right? Of sweeping the floors, doing the dishes, that kind of thing into art itself. And that really hit for me as someone who spends a shocking amount of time doing things like going for walks outside and changing dirty diapers and washing bottles and pouring breast milk into the bottles and feeding the baby, talking to the baby, and before you know it, Chris, it's insane how fast all the time has gone. And before it, you know it, you look up and, you know, you woke up at 5.36 and it's noon. And you think, oh my God, I have, <laughs> I have things to do. I have, you know, art to create. So I like this, I like this shift in perspective towards the maintenance. Well, it's interesting, you know, that uh, it reminds me of, you know, Gary Snyder, uh, the California poet and beat poet, you know, when he went to live in Japan in a monastery and he was always thinking in this sort of practical Washington state farm boy, uh, lumber worker, forest ranger type of, you know, American ingenuity way of ways to save time for the, the monks. You know, they could do these things more efficiently. And they kept saying, you know, and laughing at him and saying, look, you know, it's all one meditation, yeah, you know, right. that these things that you think, you know, like sweeping the floor, that they're not important. You need to change your perspective. And I, I think that's that's a really great sort of Zen idea to, to, to get in touch with. And I think you need to, if, if one is to get in touch with it, it has to be at an extremely practical, down-to-earth level to really kick in. Um, but I, I think that artist is a very interesting artist. Uh, it certainly ties in with our, our uh, 
earlier interest in, in outsider art, which is one of the themes that we kind of launched the whole podcast series around, uh, I think she certainly fits into that. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's an interesting female perspective on that, of kind of a, a domestic sense of wonder and possibility. Mm-hmm. Um, and if we could all discover that again, you know, think how, how different... Uh, society would be instead of being cranked up on you know junk food and looking for the next entertainment buzz to really get into some very down-to-earth essential basic things and frequently I, I think people do find that in in the parenthood experience particularly in in the early days you know and I, I think that that's great to be able to savor that and, and to to really engage with it because it, it does all just slip by so quickly, you know? It certainly does. And bringing up the monks and it all being one meditation, I was thinking about how when I was growing up, uh, going through the American public school education system, you sort of get these flashes of, of education, of ideas, of history, math, all this kind of stuff. And I was contrasting that with the idea of a kind of classical education that perhaps I'm romanticizing in in my uh, viewing of it, but the idea that there were monks that uh, followed a course of study, right? Buddhist monks who sort of meditated on specific koans for years and years and years, and how that relates to domestic housework and the raising of a child. I think that in my previous 34 years up to this point, I have valued things like adventure and novelty, which have their place, but I'm choosing to see the value in kind of being forced to slow down. I've, you know, I found myself at times, uh, you know, feeding Gus, thinking to myself, like, man, this kid drinks really slow. Well, yeah, man, he's two months old. He's not. He's not going to gulp down his milk and you know, go back outside and play. That's not. That's for later. So. Instead, I was like, why don't I just look at his face, right? Why don't I just kind of memorize what his face looks like? Because his face won't always look that way, you know? And then I'll think back on it. Definitely not. Yeah. I get It's so funny. I get emotional just even saying that, right? This is the, this is the wreck that being a parent has turned, has turned <laughs> me into. But, you know, it, 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 it's a beautiful thing. And I think... There's a lot of value in meditating on the idea that what makes a life uh, interesting is is a balance between adventure and novelty, and uh, and also committing to doing one or two things very well. You know, it's kind of the Bilbo Baggins model, right? Of having a of going out and saving the world and having your adventure, and then spending the rest of your life sitting by a fire and reading and drinking beer with your friends. I think that's beautiful in its own way. I do too. I do too. Uh, it's interesting. My mother is a big, she really identifies with Bilbo Baggins and like him has, has lived a very long time. She's unfortunately uh, dealing back in the hospital now. Oh dear. Which is unfortunate. I'm sorry. She's, she's holding very, you know, she's, she's, she's tough. But I think that is a, you know, a really uh, important model of being able to adventure out and then to to enjoy the hearth, you know, the hearth and the horizon, you know, yeah. those two uh, different sides of, of a very interesting spectrum. Mm-hmm. Of course, there's also the thing of, I think, being able to have adventures 
just walking around the corner to the convenience store. Yeah. You know, I think that's one of the problems with people who uh, who need to, you know, be at the Everest Base Camp or at the headwaters of the Amazon. And I've I've known several people like that. And they're honestly not that interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, they they don't have they it for all of, of the amazing things that have happened uh, in their lives. They they don't necessarily end up being great storytellers or being great sharers of that. And I think that that that's a really important thing of just tuning into sharing. Uh, tuning into family and community, and and then everything is kind of an adventure, you know, mm-hmm. really. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's certainly when we talk about our, our um, crystal radio idea, one of the three uh, paradigms that we're talking about in our episode behind the paywall uh, for people who, you know, I hope will be interested in that. That's really the crystal radio idea is that do-it-yourself uh, science project at home, learning with your kids, learning yourself, um, that aspect of life. You can't really teach that. People either have that kind of curiosity and, and stamina of wonder over their lives, or they don't, you know? Yeah. Uh, and it's kind of sad, but I, I think that you can certainly, you know, encourage that in Gus. It sounds like he has a lot of curiosity and uh, and will you know mm-hmm. will to engage with the world? Um, I I would I find when when kids don't have that or when they're sort of scared, it's it's very difficult. You know you can already see a kind of um, a personality that's going to be hard to relate to. Yeah, um, yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah, I've, but I have a thought. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Well, I, I just, uh, one of the things, I've, I've been making some notes about, you know, um, this is such an interesting, you know, the infant phase, which uh, traditionally, you know, I think a lot of men who uh, are great fathers at, at different stages in a child's life, that they often have not had the uh, exposure to and the opportunity uh, to participate in the infant stage as you have. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they, they come in at, you know, I don't know, five or six, or they might be really, you know, some people are really great with young teenagers, or mm-hmm. everybody's kind of different in that, uh, in, in the teacher side of, of being a parent, mother or father. Um, but I think it's really cool that you're getting that, uh, a window into, um, well, this very special individual, but also I think a, a bigger human picture than, than what a lot of men uh, throughout history and around the world, you know, mm-hmm. culturally mm-hmm. have not had a, a, a chance to. So, um, yeah, you got to, you know, journal and, and, and keep records because it, it does get away, you know, yeah. it really slips away. Yeah, the time passes really fast. And speaking of time passing very fast, we're about halfway through here. Chris, uh, is there anything that you wanted to talk about in particular today? Well, one thing I want to flag for, I think, um, I think a future series, uh, because it ties into your experience, and I think it's something that a lot of people uh, relate to, and it's it's been on my mind. I think we might have, have talked about it in, uh, in fragmentary form. I don't know if we have one. I can't, I don't think we've talked about it in any actual episodes, but it's, um, it's the invention of childhood. 
Uh, childhood as a social construct, as a feature of modernity that is different um, than in, in, in times gone by, uh, how it's different in, in different cultures. Because hmm. um, I think it really is a, an interesting crossover where some clear biological and physically tangible factors move into both the social dimension and I think what you and I kind of feel is the cultural spiritual connection. Mm. Um, mm -hmm. I was a little bit reminded of, uh, I, uh, I found in my notes a reference to Maurice Ravel's uh, operetta, uh, which is the child and the spells or the child and the enchantments. The, uh, the libretto was actually written by Colette, Mm. Uh, the French uh, novelist and uh, it's a very interesting story about um, it was originally written with a boy child but it has historically been performed with a girl child particularly recently mm -hmm. but it's about a, a rude um, little child uh, who um, is really has some psychological problems is the way we'd review it today. The child throws tantrums, destroying the room, harming animals, stuffed animals and toys. And in a moment of being left alone, these unhappy objects in the room come to life. Oh dear. The furniture and the decorations <clears throat> begin to talk. Even the homework takes shape. Mm. Um, and, and everything comes alive. And it's this really interesting uh, look at uh, one of the darker sides of, of childhood, which is, of course, an interesting comment on parenthood. Mm -hmm. um, so I just am aware that there's a lot of, of stuff in popular culture, both high and low, that deal with... Uh, the magic of childhood and also the darker aspects yeah. of childhood yeah. and then how that reflects on the adult supervision. So I don't know. I think at some point we might just flag that as a topic to, uh, to look into because um, we've got some other things um, to, uh, to talk about today. I, uh, I do have some thoughts. Um, you, you ready? Oh, yeah. Okay. Um, well, we, we have had um, some interesting uh, correspondence with one of our devoted listeners, a friend of mine, uh, Jim Earp, who uh, lives here in Vegas. Uh, he's been uh, an academic colleague of mine. He's a writer. Uh, he's interested in a lot of, of, of interesting things. And he's got a good background in terms of, of folklore and sort of the Fortrian uh, imaginary creature world mm -hmm. or anomalous creature world. But he, he flagged a whole uh, strain of thinking to my attention where the Neanderthals uh, may have had some relationship to how um, the European folklore and fairy tale motifs surrounding trolls mm. Um, and I think, I mean, there's some visual analogs yeah. and the, one of the articles that he, uh, sent me was showing how that artistically and as a visual representation of, uh, you know, an imaginary being connects back to, uh, a, a strain of humanity that 
um, isn't really imaginary. Uh, in one, it, we, we have documents, you know, documentary evidence of, of the Neanderthals. Uh, and who knows, that, I mean, their genetic you know, strain may still be active in our uh, populace now. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I think it's interesting to consider that many of the imaginary creatures that populate the collective unconscious may have their origins not just in imagination, but actual, uh, they may have some physical, historical analogs. Yeah. So that was one thought to to look into. I love that. And so you recently sent me an email called Blog Notes, which contains a lot of, it's kind of a Chris Sacknesum grimoire, if you will. Lots of thoughts and quotes and definitions that we are going to be uh, sort of peeling apart and providing for the Patreon subscribers. But what comes to mind is this piece that you wrote here. Uh, In Alan Watts' The Book on the Taboos of Knowing Who You Are, there's a reference to an observation by G.K. Chesterton, which reads, It is one thing to be amazed at a gorgon or a griffin, creatures which do not exist, but it is quite another and much higher thing to be amazed at a rhinoceros or a giraffe, creatures which do exist and look as if they don't. And <laughs> I think that's great, man. It comes to mind like some... I do too. Uh, have you ever seen sort of... Th- there are compilations of this online of um, artists' renderings of real creatures that they sort of bring back to, to Europe, to Spain or England or what have you after going out on, on adventures. There's this great one of, a, of an otter and the otter is a. It looks like it must be about thirteen feet long, and it just has this this fierce little face. But it, it looks almost like a worm, and uh, the caption for it read, uh, "Sure, I guess that's what an otter looks like." But you know, so funny to think <laughs> to think of these guys who were bringing back crocodiles. And there's a story with the platypus, right, where no nobody believed that it existed. It had to sort of yeah. be captured and brought back. And you know. A, a, a mammal that lays eggs and is just, you know, sort of God's leftovers, like what he kind of had laying around. Uh, it's also poisonous, isn't it? A platypus is poisonous. Uh, it has a, it has a barb, yes. A barb, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, under its... Uh... I think everybody, uh, upon hearing about that, was like, yeah, okay, sure. Which is re- a really funny demonstration of uh, of how science works, right? Uh, the idea that this would have been perceived as something completely made up and, you know, you'd have to readjust your entire paradigm when you actually see a living platypus. Well, it's the three blind men and the elephant, yeah, isn't it? it is. You know, mm-hmm. it, it, it really is. And I, I, you know, there's a, I mean, Jung was right on this with his idea of the collective unconscious, of grounding it, in in biology you know mm-hmm. he said theoretically it should be possible to peel the collective unconscious layer by layer uh until we come to the psychology of of the worm even the amoeba you know and i think and and wilhelm reich you know picked up on that too i think it's uh it's a fascinating idea that that somehow embedded within us all that whether you know physically or uh, as we kind of are beginning to explore and argue in the, in the, the second half, our, our Patreon episodes, 
uh, that there may be another way the information is uh, transported and stored and shared, that it may not be biological DNA mm -hmm. transmission. But it, it's fascinating that there are these mechanisms, and, and they're, they're probably mechanisms on multiple levels. I don't think that we need to have one channel, you know, mm -hmm. for because the level of information is so odd and so varied. Mm -hmm. But it's interesting to think that we all are kind of expressions of um, some deeper knowledge, some body of, of secrets. Mm. You know, it's uh, it, it, I, I think that's fascinating. And to what extent that we ever find that out about ourselves, mm -hmm. you know, is, is, it, is that kind of level of self-knowledge even possible or is it inherently uh, off limits you know I think that's a that's a really interesting sort of way to go but the other um, analog that I was thinking of with the Neanderthals and the trolls is of course uh, dragons um, you know I, I think that there's it can't be a coincidence that giant dinosaurs roamed the earth and that we have the mythology around dragons um, and I've there are dragons still alive. I've seen Komodo dragons up close. Mm -hmm. I am glad that they're restricting tourism to uh, the islands of Komodo and Flores in uh, Indonesia. Mm -hmm. But they're amazing creatures scary. to see. Really scary. Oh, man. And they're, they're, they have a kind of, not really a venom, but there's kind of a poison in their mouths. So that when they attack like a deer or a goat... Uh, should the creature get away, it's not going to survive very long because it is toxic. Right. But what really gets me, and this is something that I'm exploring in my uh, big Pacific Island mythology novel, um, and, and this is something I found in old Malay. Um, there are old Malay uh, and Malaysian pirate legends about uh, a kind of black Atlantis yeah. civilization in the Indonesian archipelago. It was, the island was destroyed by volcano, but there, was, there are rumors or legends about a kind of uh, black Phoenician uh, kingdom, if you like, mm -hmm. in the Western Pacific. Mm -hmm with advanced sailing technology, uh, terraced gardens, just a lot of uh, cultural innovation that, that we just don't expect in that part of the mm -hmm. world. Mm -hmm. And the thing that really is the kicker though, which I just love, is that this lost legendary island was home to giant monitor lizards. Mm much bigger than today's Komodo dragons, mm -hmm. and that these creatures were not surprisingly the totem animals of worship. Oh, I mean, wow. that would make perfect sense to me. If you had giant Komodo dragons, I, I that would be the center of my religion. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> you know? Yeah, exactly. And it's interesting also that you mentioned, I'd never heard of this before, it's interesting that you mentioned that there is a lost civilization of black Phoenicians because... Peter Kingsley's done a lot of interesting work tracing uh, Phoenician uh, sort of mysticism down through Pythagoras, right? 
and all the way to Plato and then Aristotle, where it was sort of whitewashed out of philosophy, right? But that that would be that would make a lot of sense that there would be a kind of Atlantean uh, kingdom from which this kind of um, meditative occult uh, magic sort of came from, right? Um, that's neither here nor there. That's just interesting to me. Um, but yeah, I would worship a giant lizard too. <laughs> well, I, I think for listeners who are curious about what we are discussing behind the paywall, uh, we're picking up on, on these major themes of ours, you know, a new anthropology, a new sort of definition of uh, animist magic and how that might sit in with contemporary science. Uh, a whole lot of issues like that, the nature, the, the mysteries of language, and ultimately the, the, a, a new working definition of, of what culture means. But along the way, I think that we're, we're peeling back or at least asking some questions about human geography uh, as, as it's put forward. Because one of the most fundamental paradigms uh, after the Big Bang and the theory of evolution is really the single branch out of Africa theory of human mm. dispersal mm -hmm. and diaspora. And, you know, every year for, I mean, there is still some archaeology and anthropology getting funding today in our techno-obsessed era. And I'm very grateful for that because I think every year there are new discoveries made that challenge the simplicity and just, well, really just the ineptitude of uh, our, our current paradigms of, of human geography mm -hmm. that just simply don't hold up. And, and we're going to find some, some new mysteries unraveling, you know. And I, I think that uh, in one sense, climate change is going to reveal some new things. I think there'll be new discoveries made. I think people are going to hopefully get re-engaged with the whole subject and start asking some questions about, well, wait a minute, you know, you can't just have arrows around a globe. What does that actually mean? Yeah, yeah, you know? yeah. So there are two thoughts that I have. Number one, I saw this great video recently about um, the the statues at Easter Island, those those big imposing heads. Um, the Rapa Nui. Yeah, the yeah. Rapa Nui. Yeah, and the, the Rapa Nui had told explorers that the statues walked there and that's how they got to where they were and it was sort of dismissed and there's this kind of great video where probably two dozen people have three ropes lassoed around a, a kind of mock-up of one of those statues and they're sort of um, using some some coordination that I don't quite understand they're sort of pulling the statue along but it does look like it's walking uh, unfortunately their statue is about uh, nine or ten feet high, and I don't know if you've seen the full bodies of the the statues on Easter Island, but they're. they're I, I've been there. Yeah, oh, excellent. I have. Okay, perfect. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So they're massive, and uh, when I was I nerd out on this kind of stuff. When I was looking at the statue, because I thought, oh, this can't be right. This statue isn't anywhere near big enough. But when I was looking at it, I noticed the hand placement on the statues down around their navel, right. And something clicked in my head because it is a spitting image. And I'm sure this has been pointed out elsewhere, but I just, I had to point this out. They are the spitting image of the T-pillars in, uh, in Gobekli Tepe in Turkey, right? Which is widely considered to be sort of the first 
uh, sort of stone structure that that people erected pre pre agricultural civilizations uh, erected this uh, uh, sort of circle of of T pillars and stones that have carvings of vultures and scorpions and uh, sky burials with disembodied heads and things like that. But I thought, hmm, that is an interesting connection, right? And then from there on some of the T-pillars in Gobekli Tepe, you have this very strange symbol that almost looks like a like a padlock that you'd, that you'd put on maybe your bike or on a storage unit. And that symbol, which is called uh, the handbags of the gods, is replicated everywhere from, you know, uh, Polynesia to Africa, uh, to Gobekli Tepe, all the way to Ecuador, right? In some of the the Mayan sculptures that they've found there. So, <clears throat> sorry for the ramble. I know that's a lot, but I completely nerd out on this, on these connections, right? On these uh, uh, similarities that seem to imply um, a, one source, but but I don't know, right? But, may, but maybe maybe not. Maybe these are just repeating patterns that are in, you know, what you would call culture with a capital C, right? I, I think this is a great riddle because I think it goes both ways. There certainly are some, just as there are story and, and myth fairy tale motifs that repeat and repeat and repeat, there are certainly design motifs that, that clearly do repeat in cultures around the world, tremendously different environments. They kind of go against uh, any uh, any argument for the differentiation of peoples based on geography and, and habitat. Uh, at the same time, you've got some immense differences in, in basic design aesthetics right. that I think are equal, from another point of view, they're even harder to explain. Mm. Uh, I mean, where, where did these phenomenally defined uh, and immediately recognizable uh, design characteristics come from? And why are they so different? Why, why, when we do have motifs and design elements that repeat, what's going on when they diverge so, you know, richly? You know, yeah. it's uh, there. There isn't a clearing. I mean, I, I think that's one of my great hopes with this whole field of of looking back into the deep past of of the human story that we might get re-energized, looking for answers, even if we don't always, you know, find ones that we can all agree on. Just the searching, the treasure hunting, I think, opens up new possibilities because. It's just plain very mysterious, isn't it? There's not going to be the simple answers that you know those arrows coming out from Africa and crossing mm. the Indian Ocean sort of suggest. It's mm -hmm. like, oh, I don't think it's quite that simple. No, you know? not at all, not at all. So, a question for you then: do, What do you think about uh, Atlantean civilizations? Are you a believer? Uh, what on what side of this do you fall? Well, I'm certainly, uh, I, I mean, I, I love the mythology. I love the mythology of Atlantis. Uh, and I, I was thinking about Edgar Cayce, who we might discuss uh, in the second mm -hmm. episode a little bit more and his involvement with Atlantis. I certainly love this black uh, Phoenician sort of Atlantean culture 
in somewhere in the Indonesian archipelago or the Bismarck Sea. I think that's phenomenally interesting. Um, I, I think this is something really central to our idea of Minong's jungle, mm -hmm. uh, which is kind of the, the philosophical collective world of imaginary beings and ideas and entities that don't exist but seem to exist, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, everything from unicorns to Plato's beard, if <laughs> listeners are familiar with that mm. uh, kind of paradox. So somehow this ancient lost civilization idea, um, which is kind of connected with, you know, biblical ideas of, of before the flood, uh, it's connected with the golden age, um, you know, a lot of cultures have had that. It, it's all kind of one meditation in terms of the old ones. Right. And um, I guess H.P. Lovecraft gives us the dark side of yeah. the elder ones, yeah, you know, right. some sort of tentacled, you know, Cthulhu sort of awfulness. So I think what, what what's going on with this is a real hunger for an explanation beyond explanation of the human story. So it's hard for me not to, uh, to really get with that. One of the ways I think of it, uh, and Easter Island is, is a good, is the touchstone here. Are you familiar with the, you know, the, the, the language, Rongo Rongo? No. Um, which is this hieroglyphic language from Easter Island. Um, which, I mean, a lot of so-called experts aren't even sure it is a language. It's fascinating to look at, mm, though. Mm -hmm. um, and I think it can be considered as kind of an organic, uh, hallucinatory, uh, hieroglyphic system of some kind. And I think that's kind of what's going on here is that we're, we're looking at something so cool and inviting and also forever elusive. Yeah. You know, right. in terms of, of the beginnings uh, of, of human civilization. I, I think all of these are allegories and ceremonies and pageants on that same theme. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, I mean, I think we've, we feel that in our, uh, in our personal psychologies. William James said that. Jung said, you know, the figurative language of dreams could be a survival of an archaic mode of thought, mm. you know? It's it's a it's a it's rongo rongo, you know, yeah. and I think that sometimes that's exactly how I feel about my dream life. Yeah. It's you know, and I think with these great myths, uh, that's what we're seeing. It's the phylogeny recapitulates ontogeny done on a cultural scale. Yeah, you know. Yeah, no, a hundred percent. I uh, I love that a lot. You mentioned uh, a bit earlier back Lovecraft. Uh, it's really interesting that Lovecraft took something like Dagon in The Shadow Over Innsmouth, right? And made him into this kind of scary fish god that, you know, turns the people of Innsmouth into these uh, creepy zombie-like creatures, right? But if you look at Dagon in Sumerian mythology, Dagon is one of the gods who comes out of the ocean bearing, you know, the fire, right? And he's carrying one of those little handbags in all of these reliefs that they've uh, found all over, you know, Iraq and Iran and places like that. And it's interesting too, because the costume that he wears, he's, he is a fish man. 
Um, and he's sort of wearing this hat. It's kind of a funny looking hat that it's, it's a fish head and it has been pointed out, hasn't gone unnoticed that it looks remarkably similar to uh, the kind of hat that a, that a Pope would wear. Right. So it's kind of this sort of echo through, through time of these different shapes and costumes. Like why does a Pope's hat look like that? You know, maybe it's a holdover from, from Dagon, man. Well, it, you know, and it's so interesting that, that some of this same kind of thing, these hybrid creatures, uh, I mean, it, it's a constant theme running throughout visual art from the very beginning, you know, from, from the cave paintings that have fairly interesting line drawings of antelope-like creatures. They're always intermingled with these strange dream creatures, which is, in fact, you know, the, the kind of what the No Country logo is based on. And, and then these, these amazing sort of dream nightmare beasts and, and divine spirits, they repeat through so many of the strange artists. You know, think of Hieronymus Bosch. Mm. I mean, his whole catalog of, mm-hmm. you know, you can say, yeah, they're demons and, and whatnot, but they have so much of a dream-like, deeper quality than than religious uh, sort of demons and angelic figures. But even those are, you know, I mean, what an odd idea that is. Mm-hmm. And all of the outsider artists uh, and the you know the great illuminated manuscripts, you look some through those kind of really cryptic, uh, enigmatic, very. Uh, not what maybe not quite on the level of the Voynich manuscript in terms of complete uh, hermetic, you know, mm-hmm. intimacy, mm-hmm. but there's often like these fishmen, and I I I I have a, an image right in front of me, and the Pope hat is is a very fair comparison. It you know mm-hmm. it it is that mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. Um, yeah we can. The uh, public domain review has a, has a couple of, of really beautiful uh, prints that they've taken from. Uh, I think it's a 13th century manuscript. Uh, but there there are these kinds of creatures, and the and the fish creature is a fish man, a merman. You know, that's an ongoing theme. You know? Yeah, yeah. As a as a kind of funny side note, uh, are you familiar with the person named Bam Margera? I don't think so. He was a give me a reference. He was a part of the MTV show Jackass. He's kind of a skater, uh, oh, okay, kind no, of kind no. of rose to prominence by sort of abusing his parents uh, for laughs. I used to find it very funny. I'd probably find it less funny now. Um, but he uh, had some problems with drugs and alcohol, and so he's been in rehab. And while he's been in rehab, he invented a language that he raps in. And he took a picture of the of the language and posted it to Twitter or Instagram, maybe. And I took one look at that and I thought, oh my God, he's writing in, in Voynichian, right? It looks exactly like the Voynich manuscript. So I was like, you know, maybe God picks uh, strange prophets, you know? <laughs> maybe, there's, maybe there's something to that. But before we go, I did want to, uh, you know, you've been mentioning the dream world a lot. And last time we ended with a dream from you. So I was wondering if there's anything else that's been going on in the dream world of Chris? Well, yes, there is. Oh, good. Yes, Excellent. there is. Excellent. And I, I have, I don't have any explanation for this, and I don't think we're called upon to explain our dreams. I, I will say that 
not too long before I uh, went to bed, this is a couple of nights ago, I was going back over some notes on William James, and I believe it's from the essay, Great Men in Their Environment, but there's a question, why not step into the green darkness? Mm. Which, I don't know, I thought that was a really lovely idea. Green is a very fascinating color. Uh, you know, talked about the new sphere, uh, the, the hypothetical atmosphere of thought yeah. and the phosphorescence of psychic energy around the earth being a kind of fluorescent sort of green. So that might be kind of what um, was uh, in my mind. And um, then someone had asked me, uh, a, a friend said, well, I'm, in, I'm enjoying the show with, with you and Dave. And what do you guys call yourself? What, what do you think of yourselves as? And I, I thought, well, hmm. I thought, well, everybody's an activist today. I thought, well, we're psychoactivists. I like it. Um, and then I thought, <laughs> I oh, like it. We're entropy bushmen. Yeah. And then I thought, there are a lot of people who are debunking things. And I thought, well, we're rebunkers. Yeah. And uh, we're crypto theologists. And then uh, I thought of Sir Joseph Banks, who's one of my heroes. And he, he wanted to be, his aspiration was to be a voyager a monster hunter and an amoroso. Well, there we go. And I thought that's beautiful. So I went, I went to sleep and, um, in the dream, uh, you were very much a part. We actually had an office. Hmm. We had a kind of working office on a street in some kind of city that reminded me of like a gothic version of Omaha, Nebraska. <laughs> it was very, very strange. Oh, but that tracks though, the, doesn't it? Yeah. Well, it, it did. And it looked really, you know, like the, it was just fantastic. It really had that kind of amazing photographic side to it. But the joke was, you know, dreams always contain their own histories, or mine often do. So it's not like it's a first time. It's somehow you've got a fossil record within yeah, it. Yeah. Well, one of the ongoing jokes was that we were never in the office. We had a sign in the door. And this is, check this out, because and for listeners, Dave, neither Dave nor I really drink anymore. Okay, right, so right, right. but the sign says, "We are self-medicating at the Green Robin, ah. like gone fishing, yeah. you know, back in two hours, three hours, back next day, you know, mm -hmm. self-medicating at the Green Robin." Well, okay. And I'm, I'm not embellishing this at all. The Green Robin is like two doors down. <laughs> and it is some weird old, uh, I don't know what it would have been originally, but inside it's actually, it's Moorish. Mm -hmm. You know, it's Arab uh, meets Spain. Two very odd cultures. And it's this kind of hookah lounge with uh, teas, and they sell these mysterious quenchers from like South America and Japan, stuff that you've never heard of. But the thing that's fantastic is that in the midst of this Moorish design, there are these alcoves 
that have different themes. One is covered in these old, like Montgomery Ward's calendars and postcards. It's the great outdoors. You know, there's some guy in, in rubber waders ripping a trout, a rainbow trout out of a Montana, yes. you know, trout stream. These illustrations that are just like from another world. There's another room called the grunge room, which is kind of like punk, uh, grunge era Seattle sort of nightclub and complete with the aromas, mm -hmm. the odors of those sorts of things. But the, the place that, that uh, we take refuge in is technically only available for special functions, but it's the wiggle room. <laughs> and I just, I don't know. I mean, I can't even begin to <laughs> describe what the wiggle room was like. It's, it's, but it was exactly, I think, the amalgam of motifs, the melange of, of ideas and stuff that we're striving for. And it was about that time that the hookahs arrived and, and I woke up. But I just thought, that is it. Yeah. You know, self-medicating at the Green Robin for starters. I mm -hmm. mean, why the Green Robin? I have no idea. Why any of those elements? But somehow it all seemed to fit. And I was very pleased that you were right there too. I'm pleased that I was there as well. I've been so I've been sleeping like the dead lately with very few dreams. So it's possible that I've just been inhabiting the dreams of other people, which is why I showed up, you know? But I also think that if we could go back in time, and I do love the name No Country, but if we could go back in time and name this podcast Self-Medicating at the Green Robin, uh <laughs> Maybe that'll be our subhead, right? And and just never explain it. You have to listen to episode what is this forty two? I think something like that. You have to you have to find out what we're talking about when we talk about the Green Robin. But that's fantastic. It's very rich. There's a lot going on there, and I think that we. It was immense. Yeah, yeah, and I think that we can let listeners chew on that one folks if you have enjoyed this episode thanks very much for listening chris and i are going to take a quick break and we're going to hop on over to the paywall section to discuss um the topic of characters and imaginary friends and how that ties into our ongoing project with the crystal radio the pirate radio and the ghost radio chris is there anything you wanted to add before we take our break no, that was well said. That's exactly what we're going to jump into. And I, I think that people can get a flavor for how we're, we're developing the ongoing first episode, which will continue to be free and is, is part of our community building. And the second behind the paywall side is, is a little bit deeper kind of investigation and, and has a different tone to it. And we do hope people will, will check us out. Yeah, excellent. Okay, folks, I'll see you there. And uh, thanks for listening. Bye. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to the Patreon bonus hour of the No Country podcast. Chris and I are still here, although who knows what has transpired in the 10 minutes since we last talked. It's, uh, it's kind of a no man's land. You'll just have to imagine what Chris gets up to in his spare time. <laughs> and I've got some new toys, too. Uh, oh, and, dear. And, and that toys sounds a bit treats. sinister. 
<laughs> sounds so sinister. Oh, that's great. That's great. Well, listeners, I uh, had a, almost had a heart attack because the first half of this episode that you just listened to, you know, Chris and I have a lot of fun every time that we show up to record these episodes, but sometimes, <clears throat> excuse me, we agree that we're both firing on all cylinders and having a lot of fun. And this, you know, this first hour was one of those moments. And when I uh, went to save, uh, it told me that my audio had dropped out, and I thought, "Okay, this is terrible. This is this is horrible news." But luckily, I went back, and of course, you listened to it, so you know it still exists. Apparently, one small moment in the episode when I wasn't talking anyway, my audio had dropped out. So all is well that ends well. Um, but I thought to myself. You know, we are at the tail end here of a Mercury retrograde that coincides, I believe, with a Saturn retrograde and an eclipse. Now, Chris, do you know much about astrology? You know, I really don't. I've, I've, I've studied it in the past from the point of view of the history and philosophy of science. And beyond just the, the interest in terms of kind of the psychology of it and, and, and uh, yeah. well, the psychomythology and certainly the visual design uh, and how it's a, a little bit influenced uh, or certainly, you know, in general terms connected with the early history of maps, celestial mm-hmm. mapping. You know, that's the kind of thing that I've I've been interested in. But I, I'm I'm honestly puzzled by uh, astrology. Um, I'm a Cancer. My uh, my yeah. birthday is is coming up. It's a week from today, uh, the 28th of June. And I've always related uh, personally to the information and kind of the profile set down about Cancerians. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I don't know. I'm fascinated by it. I, I, I don't have a model in my mind of, of how it, it works other than the, you know, the ancient rule of as it is above, so it is below, you know? Um, I, I don't know how it works exactly either, and it's a huge glaring blind spot in my uh, otherwise semi-robust magical practice but the thing is is that i have the good fortune of having met several extremely prominent uh talented astrologers sort of like i know very prominent uh, and talented tarot readers and so while astrology and to a much larger extent tarot interest me i kind of defer to the experts as uh, is the common parlance when it comes to to these kind of things. But my understanding of a Mercury retrograde is that everything mechanical uh, either doesn't work or takes forever to work. And once I started noticing that, uh, it seems to have held true every time we're in this you know, hellish span of weeks. If you're going to get your oil changed in your car, they're going to find out you know, that your alternator has failed. Uh, if you're going to paint your house, you know, you're going to be driving to uh, your home and the paint's going to spill all over the interior of your car, things like that. Um, so my first thought when this file didn't go through was, or that it said that it dropped out, I thought, oh my God, Mercury retrograde has really stricken again and it has truly screwed us. So I spent the past 10 minutes um, exporting those files to send off to Andrew so that we could get those those uploaded so I didn't have anything wrong with the with the technology right because my perception of astrology 
has a lot to do with uh, with Pascal's wager, right? Which I'm sure you know most of the listeners are familiar with. Roughly speaking, Pascal's wager is uh, it's better to uh, believe in God on the off chance he exists, so that you don't go to hell, uh, rather than not believing in God, which has no real upside, because if he doesn't exist, it doesn't matter. But if he does, then you're going to hell. And uh, that's kind of how I feel about astrology. Better to just, you know, if it's Mercury retrograde season and I'm going to, to Walgreens for some bubble water, just block out 30 minutes of time to do that. It's right down the street. Block out 30 minutes because who knows what, what could happen. Well, you know, I live in Las Vegas, so the whole idea of Pascal's wager is is alive and embedded and interlaced with the uh, the culture. Uh, even you know during the COVID phase, that the the gambling instinct remains, and the superstitions, folklore, and and sense of of possible magics. Uh, even if they're uh, deployed in very crass commercial terms, you can still feel some kind of energy about it. it um, it's something I haven't touched base with for a while, but it, it, there is something to that where keeping your mind open to the possibilities seems like the better option than categorically saying none of this stuff holds up i mean because on what basis would one say that i i I don't know um so always go into the woods with bigfoot repellent because you'd rather have it and not need it than need it and not have it well said well said all around (laughs) have you have you heard of the modern update of pascal's wager it's called roco's basilisk I just heard the name. I'm, I, I I do know something dim about, it, but I I I, I want to hear more. So so mm-hmm. fill us all in on that. Sure, I love so Rocco's Basilisk. I think they're great. Yeah, yeah, they're pretty. They're they're cool. Um, so Rocco's Basilisk was popularized on the forum Something Awful in the early two thousands, I believe, and it it's an update of Pascal's Wager that has specifically to do with AI, right? And what it posits is that in the future, there could very well be an artificial intelligence that is, you know, Skynet from Terminator, right? It's this, you know, totalitarian, monstrous, red-eyed force that has enslaved humanity, right? And it is going to um, uh, reward everybody who helped it to achieve sentience, right? And punish everybody who has, uh, you know, has not helped it achieve sentience by condemning them to a sort of matrix-like hell where they're forced to relive artificial digital lives over and over and over again. So where the Pascal's wager comes in is that, okay, if that never happens, that's totally fine, but what if there's this AI that will resurrect and punish you for not... Uh, sort of advancing the eschaton, as it as it were, and the guy who invented it on the something awful forums uh, created such a, a mind fuck with this. Right, people were com- just losing their minds over the concept of Rocco's basilisk, and he actually issued an apology. He said, "If I knew the mental strife that this was going to cause this community." 
I would have never brought it up in the first place. So yeah, man, Rocco's Basilisk. Well, there's more than a little hint of, I, I can't decide if it's Calvinist or, or straight Catholic uh, going on there, but I, I think that's a wonderful, uh, you know, whirlpool to throw everyone into, you know? Um, yeah, yeah. Somehow that makes me smile. Yeah. <laughs> well, you're not going to be smiling when you're, uh, when you're in a, a hellish matrix of your own, of your own uh, doing. From your own callous apathy, Chris. No, that's true. And it'll be very personal, I'm sure. But as long as I can project that onto someone else and enjoy their discomfort and anxiety, then then I I, I enjoy it as an idea, you know? (laughs) Right. (laughs) Right, right. Excellent. Well, okay. So we're now here in the second half of the show. And um, this is the part of the show... uh, if you have just subscribed to the Patreon, I encourage you to kind of go back and listen to the three episodes that have come before this one to kind of get a, a handle on what Chris and I are talking about when we bring up culture with a capital C versus a lowercase c. Uh, the idea of the crystal radio, the pirate radio, and the ghost radio. But we're going to continue on that theme of digging deep into uh, one aspect of these subjects that we're talking about. And today, I believe, Chris wanted to talk specifically about uh, the concept of character and characters, which uh, etymologically there's a lot going on with that that we'll get into, and also the concept of imaginary friends. So with that, I will turn it over to Chris, and uh, we'll get this party started. Okay, thank you. Uh, well, I was I was looking back through uh, my extensive notes on on Jung, who is one of our reference points. We started talking about our idea of of ghost radio as standing in for culture with a capital C is as a kind of energy field, like unto the fields of physics, even though we may not have the ability to quantify it and mathematically describe it as such now and perhaps maybe we never will uh, but looking at culture with a capital C not as something that humans make but as some kind of inhabiting energizing and informing force so I thought it was appropriate that uh, we look uh, more closely at, at Jung's thinking and writing on this topic Rupert Sheldrake is another one of our key touchstones in a, in a different way but he's certainly working in this this general frame, uh, but I was reminded that uh, the in, in Greek the word psyche means butterfly, and I was thinking that when David and I launched this podcast series, now many many episodes ago, and we're very grateful for people following us on this journey and joining with us, that our first episode and our our email address is the butterfly in your mouth, which comes from an experience that I had in New Guinea trying to learn their version of of animist magic, or to at least anthropologically sort of step a little bit free of my American culture and and learn something of theirs. And I I was asked uh, to climb a very steep embankment, basically a one-to-one gradient, which is hand over hand, in, in very high heat and humidity. And uh, the old man, he, he really was an old man, he was my, uh, my mentor and, uh, and teacher, if you like, 
Um, he gave me a live butterfly to put in my mouth and to keep alive while climbing. And I think it's just interesting to come back to that idea. I had actually forgotten for a moment that that psyche is, that's what it means, literally, is a butterfly. Oh. So, and I think psyche is, is such an important word in our larger understanding of culture. Um, because in a sense, if psyche is considered a noun, culture would be the verb form. I think that's an interesting way to think of it. Um, and so there are a few things that, uh, that Jung reminds us of. You know, he said the mind consists of the sum of the ancestral minds, the unseen fathers and mothers whose authority is born anew in the child. And I thought that was interesting, David, with, with Gus, you know, arriving that we there's a there's a transference of energy that is is dynamic and in process all the time mm-hmm. and it yet yeah. it connects much it connects Gus to a much deeper past than you and Rios immediately as parents because you are also mm-hmm. connected and i i mm-hmm. think that that sense of the the dynamism of culture and how we are the expressions of it. Uh, another very clear uh, definition that Jung put forward was signs represent, represent things we know. Symbols express, they express things we do not know. And I think that this dynamic crisis in progress sense of culture as opposed to a, an accumulation of artifacts, an accumulation of, of entertainments, an accumulation of knowledge even, is breaking that down those static patterns of this manufacturing industry sense of, of human history and seeing it more as a dynamic uh, ongoing ceremony, if you like, mm-hmm. and, and we are the current expressions of it. Um, I, I think that's just so much more an, an interesting place to be. And that might give us a little bit of a link to this very powerful and strange sense of, of characters. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I, I was thinking about this when I was writing the, the textbook. You know, characters are something obviously related to fiction and drama, but they, they permeate every form of writing, really. I, I think that... Uh, that's my argument anyway. I think writers get into character when they're writing, even a very straightforward Absolutely. journalistic piece. Um, one of the things that you know comes to mind, um, there are so many ways to approach the character idea. I mean, we have characters emerging out of Greek drama, the uh, Commedia dell'arte, but I think you, you pretty well get quickly to the idea of an archetype which is, again, something that, that Jung really developed heavily. But um, that comes actually, or he says, he, his origin point for it is the, the body of work we call the corpus hermeticum, which I think okay. listeners yeah, would yeah. be generally uh, familiar with. It's a body of, of work uh, sectioned off in different books by different authors over uh, 
a fairly substantial period of time with a mixture of real historical data that we're sure about, a lot of legendary, uh, mythical, and clearly magical uh, uh, veneer around it. Um, but it's, it's a body of work that deals with Gnostic principles of salvation through knowledge, the alchemical nature of the spirit, alchemy as a real uh, undertaking, a sort of Mm proto-science undertaking. Mm -hmm. So a whole bunch of stuff going on there. Um, So I thought we might sort of talk about characters beginning, I guess, with that major idea of archetypes, which seem to be the, the motifs that do repeat around the world, whether we're talking about a trickster figure uh, you know, a, an original uh, hero figure, cultural hero figure like Gilgamesh. Um, we have these these motifs that repeat around the world, and I, I thought I'd, we might throw that open to uh, to your take on that, David. Yeah, absolutely. First of all, the Corpus Hermeticum should be required reading, uh, especially the Emerald Tablet, uh, for No Country listeners. Uh, when it was translated into Italian, uh, Cosimo de Medici had it translated, and he was a very old man, very rich man, patron of the arts. And when he had that translated, he didn't have a whole lot of time left. He was you know, getting up there, and he had a choice between the Corpus Hermeticum, specifically the Emerald, Emerald Tablet of Hermes Trismegistus, um, and the works of Plato and Aristotle, right? And he uh, chose the Corpus Hermeticum to to get translated first. So an interesting bit of trivia there, and I think indicative of its importance. But on the subject of archetypes, I am particularly interested in in the ways that the archetypes not just manifest in story, but in uh, our day-to-day lives, right? Because the way that I conceive of the archetype is as a being in itself, not a concept or a metaphor for a being, but actual beings that that tend to inhabit uh, the characters of story or sometimes even people, right? So in my in my cosmology, archetypes are are real. Like there really is a, a trickster that gets embodied in Anansi or Loki or different different figures in different mythologies. And before I go on, I just I wanted to see how that tracks with your conception of the archetype itself. Well, I think that's a very interesting connection to move that outside the realm of, of you know, simply or purely uh, art and story. Mm-hmm. And to ground that in our in our physical lives, I think that's a very important insight. That um, it, it's almost so uh, pragmatic that it's it's easily overlooked. But this is exactly the the principle that um, George Lakoff and Mark Johnson talk about in their wonderful book uh, Metaphors uh, We Live By. That metaphors have a very concrete. Uh, and yet organic basis in our daily lives and in our moment-to-moment thought. They are not poetic or rhetorical devices used simply for effect. That is the word metaphor being used just in another context, in the same way that uh, we use culture in multiple ways, whereas you and I Mm -hmm. tend to use it in terms of the capital C. I think that's a really, really important idea because... 
What you've also suggested there, and I think we need to tease this out now more fully, is that this is not a top-down idea that comes from the grand world of mythology, legend, literature, art, uh, and culture with a lowercase c. These are are moment-to-moment realities. They're psychic experiences that are taking place within our lives all of the time. And that, therefore... The suggestion is, and I don't know if you've made this suggestion, but I think we could we should look at it, is that the the grand mythologies are very large scale in endeavors to explain smaller scale psychic realities and experiences. 100%. Does that make sense? It makes total sense, and it comes back to our chicken and egg question. Um, I think that when folks hear that they might think of a sort of bottom-up uh, manifestation but Chris has very astutely put it in previous episodes to think of this more like a web um, or a series of, of becomings <clears throat> and to, to maybe and this is me talking to myself at this point to, to not try to think too much of it in terms of beginnings and endings and sources uh, from which these things come right it's a, it's a network essentially of, of these things happening but yeah I do think that when you act uh, in a trickstery way I do believe that that is being inhabited by an archetype um, I think that that happens to us <clears throat> more often than we would maybe like to admit and um, I think it has very practical applications for magical practice when you take into account um, I guess what I'm saying is you're doing something when you purchase a statue of a figure and offer it some rum, right? And that thing has very real implications for how that particular archetype uh, or spirit begins to act once it inhabits you, right? It's just good hygiene. It's good magical hygiene as far as I'm concerned. But I have a, a, a story to that maybe I, I hope... <clears throat> I hope demonstrates what I'm talking about here. And it does go back to characters in fiction. This is one of my favorite stories. So the comic book writer Grant Morrison, who has written Animal Man and Doom Patrol, Superman, Batman, all the major comic books that you could think of, is most well known, in my estimation, for his work called The Invisibles. Yeah. Which is a comic book that ran for 60 issues, five years. And sort of, it was a proto- matrix story of freedom fighters uh sort of gnostic freedom fighters who are fighting against a group of characters called the archons which i have mentioned on shows before in fact i probably talked about the invisibles on the show before i have an invisibles tattoo on my arm so this this ranks pretty high uh in my in my personal cosmology so the figurehead of this group the kind of lawrence fishburne character if you will is named King Mob, and Grant Morrison uh, sort of modeled him, the character after himself. And the idea was that the Invisibles was what's called a hyper-sigil, which might take a second to explain. So a sigil is a magical symbol that is imbued with meaning through a quick ritual. Uh, you know, you can write out something that you desire, take all the vowels away, Uh, craft a symbol out of the remaining consonants and then meditate on it or masturbate over it whichever one floats your boat and sort of 
go about the process of then forgetting about it so that it comes true, right? But the Invisibles itself was a, a hyper sigil that was obviously distributed to tens of thousands of people across the world. Uh, at one point, Morrison is notorious for actually asking his fan base to masturbate over the final issue of the Invisibles. As <laughs> I didn't it was, know that. That's funny. As it was as it was released, right? So, in the context of King Mob, Morrison said that he wrote him to be extremely cool, good with women, uh, sort of this this pinnacle of kind of BDSM hyper masculinity that Morrison was looking to be in his real life, and he mentions that. As he wrote the comic book, he did, in fact, become more and more like the character King Mob until he wrote a very particular uh, issue and uh, sort of played with fire a little bit. So in this issue, King Mob has been captured by the Archons and he's been given a drug called Key 6, right? What Key 6 does is that it makes it so that any word that you read written out in English characters right uh becomes the actual thing that it represents right so there it breaks down the signifier and the and the and the signified so basically he's tied to a chair and he's you know getting his face disfigured with acid but all that's really happening is a mirror is, is a mirrors being shown to him with the words written you know face dissolved in acid and that's what he's seeing it's kind of a cool concept right it is the cool power of yeah. words and everything like the that the word made flesh yeah exactly but well, here's what happened so after morrison wrote this uh, issue and it came out he developed a bacterial infection on his cheek that began to eat away at his face. He had to go to the hospital, do a big run of antibiotics, and eventually it cleared up and he was fine, but he's he's known to have said that after that, you'll notice, that was me, that was in volume three, so we're talking issue 20, 21, something like that. For the rest of the run, no matter what happens to the rest of the characters in The Invisibles, King Mob uh, is strictly relegated to being cool and having sex. and and so i think that particular story is illustrative of what we're talking about with archetypes because what i think was going on with morrison in this uh in this situation was that he was actually archetypalizing himself and then representing himself within the pages of a book i don't think it's as simple as uh, what some writers do with metafiction, where you know Stephen King put himself into the Dark Tower series, uh, authors do this all the time. You know they become a character in their books, and that is magic, and that does have magical consequence, I think. But Morrison conceived this whole thing as an actual occult ritual and treated it as such. He's he's a, a known practitioner of these kind of arcane arts, right? These esoteric arts, I should say. So. I wonder if I could get your thoughts on that, right? Is Do you think my read is, is off or on or, or what? But I do think that, that a person can also inhabit the role of an archetype. And unfortunately, we are made out of flesh and blood, and we're perhaps not equipped to handle the fallout. Well, there's some really fascinating things going on here. I, I think that one of the things that's happening, if we say that... Uh, archetypes are, are one aspect of of character and this idea of character 
as a kind of psychic resonance between ourselves individually and culturally with these imagined forms. Uh, and I think an architect type can be defined as, as uh, a resonance that has cultural wide significance as opposed to purely hermetically sealed, intimate, eccentric, idiosyncratic, uh, and perhaps pathological personal connections, right? Um, mm -hmm. Jung said everyone operates on the basis of more or less imaginary relationships based essentially on projection. So there is something really intimate and magical about the character idea. And I think with Morrison, and I, I love The Invisibles too, I think that's the, the, the pinnacle of, of everything that, that he's done that I know about. Um, I think what, for starters, he obviously had magical intent. You know, he is thinking about sigils. You know, he is uh, practicing as an occultist as well as a writer, you know? So there is that level of, of magical intention built into it, which I think is very important. Um, but there's something about the nature of character in a, in a writing, storytelling, uh, projected mind sense that I think is very different than just visualized beings. Um, okay. I, I think there's something very different. And, and your, your mention of meta-writing, I think, is, is interesting. Um, Carl uh, Denise, or Carl Dennis, uh, was uh, an artist, an art critic, who made a very, very important insight, sort of uh, at that break between traditional European art and the emergence of, of what we would call modern art, of Impressionism, Cubism, etc., and he said, basically, before a painting is a representation of a nude or a horse or a scene from war, it's first of all paint and line on a surface. Mm -hmm. And it was a very simple observation, but it really was very liberating for, you know, the Picassos and, and all of the, you know, people that followed. It was an amazing breakthrough of really what, we're, what we've got to work with is, is color and line. And I think the writing equivalent would be, well, what we've got to work with are words. Um, and there is truth in that. There's absolutely, you know, you read a book and you've got words on a page. Um, you listen to someone, you've got words in, in space, you've got sound. Uh, but there's something about the nature of language that is so much more... Com I mean, and language obviously can embrace the visual, but there's something that's inherently, I think, more mysterious, more magical, and in the George Lakoff sense, more concrete than a purely visualized character or a purely visualized mm -hmm. scene. And I mm -hmm. think that that's where that magical sense of, well, uh, an infection, you know, written into a story or a crisis written into a story comes true, you know. There's somehow a psychic resonance there that uh, 
is a little bit harder to find in, in, in purely visual terms. Although, I just having said that, I just remembered that Max Ernst, who's a great surrealist artist that I really admire, he wrote about um, his father, who was also a painter, uh, painting their uh, backyard. And uh, he didn't like how the tree turned out. So he scrubbed the tree out of the painting. And the mm. next afternoon, Max Ernst looks out and his father is actually re physically removing the tree from the yard. Oh my goodness gracious. So there, there is, Oof. you know, maybe, that, maybe there's more resonance going on there. But, but somehow what we're, what we're saying is um, kind of as it is above, so it is below. That there's a kind of resonance between the individual psyche and, and the, the external world. And so mm -hmm. characters must somehow be a way of, of navigating that distance. Yeah, yeah. That's it. almost uh, psychopomps, right? Yeah. Kind of, uh, kind of guides. Yeah, I could totally see that. And so what you're saying actually makes me want to go back actually to the, the definition, the etymology of, of character for a second. Um, so character is it's Greek. It's from the Greek. Kerosin. Uh, which uh, means to, uh, let's see here, to sharpen, cut in furrows, or engrave, right? And I, th I think that the, I've also heard it, I don't have it in front of me, but I've also heard it alternatively described as to pierce, right? And I wanted your take on, on this original sort of, because of course it goes from there to meaning, you know, a, a mark, right? Uh, there's some of the earliest writings in English of characters have to do with uh, with horses, right? Horses having particular characters branded on them. But this initial idea of something that uh, pierces, I think we can take the logical route and say, well, that's what you were doing when you were, you know, when you had a clay tablet and you were writing in cuneiform, you know, you were kind of, even though that's that predates the Greek, but you know, you're kind of piercing or, or, you know, making an indent on a surface when you, when you do this. But is there something there to the idea of, of characters themselves having a, a piercing quality, maybe when they're good? I, well, I absolutely think that, you know, I think, uh, you know, and, and, and penetration, you know, mm -hmm. uh, penetrating the spirit, penetrating consciousness, penetrating, uh, the lives of, of anyone exposed to the character. I mean, I think that there's a, a very a physical, concrete sense of, of interaction that is unmistakable. It's as unmistakable as, 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 as pressing something down into soft clay or, you know, carving into wood or painting on a cave wall with with very you know a physically textured paint that has been ground especially from minerals and animal blood and yeah. you know it has this very tactile physical real quality i that to me is where the magic sort of going between the idea of an imaginary world and imaginary figures and ideas and things that are, are invisible it's it's making the invisible visible and making it right. active and somehow being able to engage with that activity um, in a way that is not 
uh, a purely uh, creative sort of act. I mean, think of all the, the stories, the world mythology around uh, inanimate things coming to life. You know, mm -hmm. Um, mm -hmm. it, it's an ongoing sort of, and there is no inanimate world for indigenous people. That, that's one of the ongoing things about the indigenous mindset. If we can generalize it all, we would say that the entire world is sentient and animate and has some uh, connection with us, whether we want it or not, that we are embedded in not just an ecosystem in, you know, in environmental terms, but, but psychically. You know, and I think yeah. that's the that's the thing that and when a character in in, in 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 conventional literary terms really grabs a hold of us, I think that we find that it it, it was already inside us. We're just discovering yeah. it, you know, in the outer world in a way, but that we there there's a resonance that was always there. Don't you think? Yeah. Oh, yeah, it brings to mind the phrase that a good book can get its hooks in you, right? Mm -hmm. uh, the idea of something piercing and then pulling something out, right? It's it's definitely a kind of exchange of blood and bodily fluids, uh, more so than maybe some people would like to think about. But the idea of, you know, a character uh, being something that pierces through, I, th I think of that in, in semi-literal terms of, you know, of an archetype breaking through a kind of veil or something you know i'm thinking of them in a waiting room like uh like the the purgatory waiting room in beetlejuice or something like that all these strange creatures you know and just waiting for their opportunity to be pushed through to like to actually become a character to become a thing that pierces into our quote unquote uh reality but then but then i wonder if that's not contradicting the more indigenous way of looking at it, which seems to me to suggest that these things don't that are already there. I'm having trouble articulating what I mean here, but I think I think you might you might get what I'm saying here. You know, the idea of it needing to be uh, helped along by the piercing of be of becoming character versus the idea of it sort of not needing that and being there whether you like it or not. I'm not sure if I'm articulating that well. I, I think that whether you like it or not is a really important aspect because one of the ideas I think that really, as far as I can see, is, is a link between whatever we mean by magic and religion. So let's look at those two mm -hmm. ideas. It's always about some force that is bigger, and to some extent, I think that's true of science. It's there's a the positing of some objective reality that's beyond what your uh, personal preferences are. I mean, gravity does not care what your personal thoughts about it are. Um, yeah. There's this, and in a positive way, it, it can be seen as a surrender to uh, larger forces, and and that makes good prudent survival sense and it can sometimes be you know very uplifting i mean how are we to find inspiration if we are not looking for something bigger than we are uh something you know that we are enmeshed in and give way to in in a certain way 
Um, but with the idea of, of you know, I, I think that that idea of whether you like it or not, there are two things that come to mind. Um, one is, uh, I haven't read him for a while, but I, I did think about him the other day, and I, uh, his name is Andrew Sims, and he wrote a very interesting book called Symptoms in the Mind, which is uh, a very interesting review of, of, of psychopathology. Um, but he said, language is a magical metabiological form of sharing that then can also reveal how little there is in common. And when I read that the other day, I was thinking about that we were, you know, might be having a discussion about characters. I also thought of a line that um, really impressed me. Uh, Harold Pinter, you know, won a Nobel Prize. I, I think he... Uh, really changed the game of modern drama in many ways, along with Edward Albee, and I think they made people like David Mamet possible. Um, but he once said that one of the big revelations for him as a, as a young playwright was that a character on stage that couldn't explain or account for herself or himself had as much validity as one that could. And that that was an immensely... uh, His first reaction was that was very disturbing. It challenged all his ideas about writing and the nature of of structure of story and and drama in that Aristotelian sense. And then it was just tremendously liberating. And together, that thought and, and the Andrew Sims line... I wonder if that doesn't speak to your sense of whether you like it or not, that we kind of started off talking about characters in terms of resonance, that they're connecting with parts of our psyche that we may or may not have been in touch with before, but when we latch onto the character, when there's that deep engraving, carving sense of, of the magic being made concrete, we're able to then perceive this resonance and a part of our own psyche in a new way. But yeah. then there's the flip side yep. of not yep. recognizing ourselves. Mm-hmm. How little we have in common. Yeah. And yeah. I think that's oh. almost even more exciting. It is. It 100% is. And those ideas, to me, absolutely mesh together if you think of a a world of archetypes or a spirit world as being inhabited by beings that you know do occasionally come down and uh, inhabit characters that are sort of uh human uh human right inhabit characters that are human whether that's flesh and blood people like you and i or characters on a page But then you'd have to imagine that there's an entire ecosystem of these things. And in the same way that there's an ecosystem of people, uh, some of whom have uh, great goals in life, some of them have great purpose, and others uh, who, by the way, have just as much of a right to to live as we we do, because of course I consider us to be, you know, the latter. But people who just want to play video games and hang out and, uh, I don't know, maybe they're really into Tonka trucks or something they exist too 
and they don't exactly fit into a, a great narrative. But the reason why people like that are beautiful and they're interesting, and, and that's why, um, you know, interview shows that I've been watching with journalists who go around and talk to people at places like Burning Man and, uh, you know, crystal festivals with, you know, magical healing crystals. The reason why it's so interesting is is because of how little I have in common with the people who I'm seeing being interviewed, right? It's a kind of almost sublime depiction of the of just the vast, diverse, uh, uncaring and yet caring at the same time, coral reef of of interconnected being, right? That it, it that has to exist, right? It's the it's the shadows that that make light, um, and I think that the idea that um, the fellow that you first mentioned, whose name is escaping me, right? That that language is is magic that shows how little we have in common. Completely nailed it, like just right on the head. Um, but yeah, that's 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 what I got from that. I mean, archetypes are going to basically come in all shapes and sizes, and some of them are going to be completely indiscernible to to us. But they have, you know, just as much of a of a right to be there, you know? Who cares about their functionality? We have such a focus on functionality. That's <laughs> exactly right, which translates to relatability, which is a term I absolutely just makes me vomit. You know, it was interesting when you said coral reef, I, I suddenly saw in my mind I, I the spelling C-H-O-R-A-L. Oh, nice. And I thought yeah. that, yeah, that's a really lovely, you know, play on that. And and that's part of the magic of words, that they move in and out in terms of the sound, the original oral tradition magic, and then the print magic, which is something that's very powerful. We talked in uh, our, our earlier um, free-to-air episode about uh, Rongo Rongo, the uh, mysterious, uh, untranslated uh, hieroglyphic language of, of Easter Island. Um, and we're not entirely sure it is a language, but I think there's something, you know, wonderful about that magical transition between the oral tradition uh, meaning of words. And that's kind of, you know, what, what Marshall McLuhan was writing about in, at the start of his career. It's certainly, he, he uses a lot of reference to uh, James Joyce and Raymond Roussel, people who are using cryptograms and playing on uh, the puns built within language, that, that, that oscillating magic between the, the sound version, the spoken word, and the written word. Um, but then I, you know, this idea of characters that we don't connect with that are bigger than life, larger than life, that that links back to our earlier series on the 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 whole cult of celebrity idea, and certainly that's, I mean, what are archetypes if not great cultural celebrities, and how can we relate, you know, to these figures? Well, in in you know we can't. Uh, one of my favorite scenes, if I could be a film director, I would, I would direct the, the very early moments of Paradise Lost when Satan 
you know, is sitting around pandemonium with all his monsters and henchmen and the exiled gods and broken, twisted angels, you know? And Mm -hmm. he says, you know, what reinforcement we may gain from hope, if not, what resolution from despair, Mm -hmm. you know? And they're, they're talking... You know, here are these hideous creatures and deformed moral entities that are well outside. You know, they're in the land of Hieronymus Bosch. You know, they're really yeah. just amazing, hideous things. And yet, there's a kind of nobility in them. But they're seriously plotting a takeover of heaven, you know? Mm-hmm. And uh, for listeners... Um, I have to say that David made an important contribution to the fiction section of my textbook, which is exactly on this topic. Uh, I asked him specifically with his background in in crime publishing and and crime as a genre to, to reflect on the appeal of that. But he expanded that to really talk about the transgressive nature of crime fiction and why that speaks to us. And I think that's something relevant here about, in a sense, we, we, we do, we want to have the courage uh, of Satan sitting around with his monsters saying, look, it's not over yet. You know, we're, we're, right. we're not finished here. Um, we're we're going to launch a counteroffensive, you know. Right. No, absolutely. And the criminal is somebody with whom, uh, in many cases, you have nothing in common. And it's that difference that I think is very appealing. There are, you know, notions of being free, of being outside of the uh, the law, um, not listening to anybody, kind of doing your own thing. But uh, more than that, there's a kind of inscrutability to the criminal, uh, a kind of lack of understanding. I've, I've always been fascinated in everything that I've written about what drives people to commit murder. Right, um, because it's such a common trope in crime fiction. You know, you'll often have a character like John Wick who can blow away five hundred guys in a, in a span of an hour and a half, and you know it's kind of a cartoon, right? But the actual act of killing another person, this kind of ultimate transgressive act, you'd like to think outside of sociopaths that there has to be a chain of events that leads up to somebody actually doing that. And I'm a big fan, particularly in fiction, of the idea that it's in the things that we don't know, the not knowing, that uh, that fiction becomes as interesting as it does, right? David Lynch is huge with this, you know, something like Inland Empire, which is kind of this glorious mess of things that make no sense at all. Um, these are artworks that are essentially representing that kind of rogues gallery of different, you know, demons and henchmen <laughs> in hell, right? Like, or representing the kind of the archetypes who really don't have a purpose with a capital P that we're used to seeing, you know? It's following the dead ends and getting the implications of things in, you know, in a glance or in a well-chosen word, right? That opens up this whole man like a green darkness in your mind right like this kind of space this imaginarium where you get to begin interacting with 
the characters, right? Both the characters that make up the words and the characters themselves. And it's in that participatory uh, dance of difference that you begin to find a real kind of sublime beauty to, to, to life and to existence. And I think that's when you start getting close to the heart of things, I think. I think that's very well said, that the dance of difference. I, I, I think that's a very good argument against the, the functional, and I think that was a nice way to put that. Um, functionalism, I, I think anybody who's familiar with that term, in, particularly in a sociological or anthropological or artistic sense, knows that it's, it really is the most reductive, simplistic uh, mechanistic framework that you can put down on anything and it's literally you know cause a equals cause B and this is the rationale for the whole program and almost no aspect of life uh, works that way and even the the you know the whole psychological biological framework of behaviorism at its most bizarre couldn't ever you know really function within the framework of functionalism and it, it's just a, a complete dead end so that idea of stepping out of oneself to find the green darkness which is a beautiful William James idea I think that we're going to explore further because I think it's linked very strongly with our whole sense of ghost radio and culture mm -hmm. with a capital C. That's exactly what I was going to say. Yeah, that's that's the ghost radio. That I'm that really is. It, it 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 is and it's an ecosystem and a psychomagnetic field and it's something mysterious that is bigger than we are, which is as you said, I think where the real resonances uh, begin. You know, it mm -hmm. isn't when we are just relating to characters as you know, I mean, and this is so much what young people are taught today. If they're reading at all or if they're connecting with, with serious artistic works of entertainment, it's so often, well, I don't, I don't relate to that. Well, it's like, okay, <laughs> um, that's because yeah. you're not doing any surrender or participatory projection. It's a completely mm -hmm. passive exactly. stance. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's it's the abyss that stares back, right? And I think by extension, what we're saying, it's also an abyss that will talk back and interact back if you enter into it, right? But if you turn 180 degrees, uh, there's a whole world of kind of functionality and uh, sort of clear archetypal figures that you can kind of spend your, your whole life in. But the abyss is really, the abyss is, is pretty scary. I mean, even the word abyss just sounds creepy. But that's where the real stuff is. That's the, I don't, I don't know if it's pleroma or not, but it's, it's something like that. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, it, it, it's fascinating how uh, we live in this era right this minute where the word identity is one of the most frequently appearing in our mainstream media and popular culture to the point where you'd have to say that we have 
a societal-wide identity crisis. Yeah. And I wonder if that's not connected with this inability to reach past our boundaries to connect with larger resonances, which perhaps people in the past have done with great facility. Certainly indigenous people do. They, they are they're often inhabited by spirits. You know, this is one of the, the tenets of, of many of the major streams of uh, what we would call religion in Africa. You know, it, it's the inhabit, being inhabited by a, a pantheon of spirits. And mm-hmm. you're, they have resonance within you, uh, but you give way to them. You know, you you actually let yourself engage with these larger, whether they are considered metaphysical or supernatural or divine. It kind of it's a much of a muchness in terms of the word used, and we seem to have a real problem with that particularly well certainly in 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 the west but i think america particularly that we we have some real doubts about these imaginary friends we want to all know and feel like we're connected with these celebrities whether it's cardi b or megan the stallion or you know whoever and yet if we see a schizophrenic on the street talking to someone who we can't see, we start to panic. Yep. Do, do you think there's any... Rela- I mean, because you, you sort of started us off thinking about characters not just in terms of story and literature and art and, and mythology, but as a, an aspect of psychic experience at ground level every day. Mm-hmm. Um, is it... Is what I just sort of laid down in terms of our relationship to imaginary friends, whether they be celebrities, and in that case, that the relationship is imaginary. It's not that the people are imaginary, but that we were okay with that and thinking, oh, there's a strong connection with Madonna, you know? Uh, <laughs> yeah, right. And yet, then I walk out and I see Robert, one of the local homeless guys. And he's talking to the big boss. Well, I can't mm-hmm. see the big boss. Um, mm-hmm. But I, 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 I've talked to him about the big boss, and I have a picture in my mind of who I would cast and how, or how, what special effects I would need to, to give the big boss life. So is there anything going on there that we can kind of bring this to some sort of focal clarity? I think so, and I think it's in a word that you used earlier, right, which is identity, Mm -hmm. right? And I think that it ties back into that quote about language, the, the, the real sort of occult reason behind language is to find the ways in which that we are not common. So what I'm suggesting is the person who is identifying with Cardi B or Madonna, right? Because identity, it's, it's, like, uh, it's like identical, right? Those have the same roots. They, they sound the same, right? So you're finding all the ways in which you are uh, sort of the same, and you're using an imaginary kind of relationship to reinforce the ways in which you are 
the same, not just to famous and rich people, but to people in general, right? It's a tether that you wrap around your waist so that you don't float off into space, right? But what Robert is doing is using language to completely cut that tether, right? And to float off into the completely, into the uncommon, right? I like the idea of the uncommon with a capital U, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, and so he's he's using it to talk to something that is, you know, perhaps a manifestation of his inner mind. I don't think we think that, but could be. Uh, but it, no matter what you think of it, he's doing whatever the opposite of identifying with something is, right? He's he's you know confronting the un, the uncommon. So I think that in terms of how you know we we think about language and archetypes it's almost as though we've separated them into uh, a, a binary which could be a problem but we can talk more about that i think as future episodes go on and there's there's this one character sort of archetype right that's the this, that is the cardi b and is the madonna and whose function is to foster sameness and then there are the 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 misfits in milton's hell which are there to sort of manifest uh, the uncommon and, and difference. And I think, in my opinion anyway, you can really break down a lot of what's going on in modern art between which side people have chosen in this kind of metaphysical war, right? Which way, which, which use do they want to, uh, uh, or, or which way do they want to use language and archetypes, right? Um, so I hope that, I hope that was on on target with what you with what you're saying there. But, well, uh, I I think it is. I look. I, I think we've we've crossed into a realm of, of tremendous uh, complexity inherently, and I mm-hmm. I think that's that's inevitable and and part of our our, our mission and, and part of the project. Um, I'm wondering sort of how to build on this for our next segment. And one thought that occurs to me. Um, because I think we like to pick up threads as we go and, and keep keep some sort of uh, kind of just general inventory management system in place because of the nature of, of how you know how, how weird and complicated things are. I wonder yeah. if the, if the tarot deck as a kind of organizing principle of of archetypal characters. I'm, I'm thinking of the major arcana rather than the suits so much. Um, I think there are 22 uh, cards in the Major Arcana. Yeah. Yeah, uh, correct, yeah. I, I think that might be... Because uh, one of the things that we said in looking at uh, the ghost radio idea, we have two models. One is a kind of psychomagnetic field, we've said, and one is, mm-hmm. is a kind of ecosystem. Um, and if we look at the ecosystem idea, thinking of it in, in sort of... Uh, taxonomy terms of trying to do a kind of aerial survey inventory of all these different kinds of creatures uh, ideas entities, characters that influence us via language that set up some sort of resonance between our personal psyches the larger societal psyche that we call culture and then the culture as the ghost radio link to Mm-hmm. wherever the signal is coming from. Uh, 
And I do have a thought on that. I just because I this is one of our themes of trying to clarify a little bit what people like Jung and Rupert Sheldrake are talking about in terms of these fields of influences or forces of influence that are not just all inside our, our DNA, that somehow are influencing us. And the question I realized is locational. And uh, I, I was just writing a little thing about, uh, well, it was the history of television. And uh, I wrote down, think of all that television stretching out and then I drew a blank underline and I said behind us beyond us after us the problem is the prepositional sense of location of spatializing uh, time spatializing this other dimension or ecosystem or field and it doesn't lend itself to that. We're going to have to expand our idea of prepositions and localizing things in, in, in spatial terms. We're going to certainly have to look you know, more four-dimensionally. But I wonder if uh, the tarot might provide a little bit of a start, because it's got a, such a rich, interesting history. I think a lot of people are familiar, uh, certainly with the, with the imagery. It's a nice blend of sort of story and image. Uh, I love all the designs. I, I, I think, you know, they're just, it's just fabulous sort of art. And I often think of doing my own tarot deck, of, of making my own characters, yeah, you know? Yeah, that would be cool. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. So maybe that might be sort of a, a, a way to, to keep moving this forward. But I think there was some real insight just very simply laid down in terms of and I mentioned this in my textbook, the link between character in the sense of Macbeth or Wiley e. Coyote or, uh, you know, Mr. Darcy and character in the sense of uh, hieroglyph, symbol, mm -hmm. uh, letter, you know. I, I think there's something really... And cipher, you know, it, it's interesting about that. I think there is some powerful magic that is going on there on a very, very ancient level. I think so, too. And I think that it is also um, definitely the kind... I mean, what we're talking about is the ghost radio, basically. I mean, if, if we were to think of what it is that we're... of, of, a, of a machine that's there to sort of uh, interpret and generate and make sense of uh, some of these kind of more far, far out uh, concepts that we're talking about. I conceptualize of this whole conversation about language and character as being a kind of roundabout, uh, somewhat abstract way of describing what the ghost radio even is. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. Well, um... I have a little story to uh, wind up this episode okay. with, which I think is, I just, uh, I wasn't planning it, but I think it's just so apropos. Um, uh, what do you think? Would you like to, uh, to hear it? I would love to. I would love to. And for anybody who's listening who's a little bit confused right now, don't worry. I think, uh, I know I am a little bit too. But Me we too. Put a bunch of, we put a bunch of toys out on the floor here. Um, I'm probably just thinking of that because of, I'm in the playroom right now. We've got a lot of toys out on the floor. 
And sometimes, sometimes this is this is good though, right? Like this, that's how I clean. You know, I, I take the broom and I go under the bed and I'm I'm sweeping out dog hair and you know pacifiers and socks and things like that. And I get them all in a pile in the room and then I can kind of you know start to pick through them. So I I would just encourage folks to uh, you know whatever you we've said that has struck a chord. In, in your particular coral reef, uh, you know, just kind of stick with that and think about that. And, and we're going to continue. This is a project, man. That's what I'm trying to say. This, this is an ongoing, ongoing project. And we're, we're getting at something. I, I, we're not, we're not just, uh, not just jerking off here, you know? No, we're definitely on a journey and, and we certainly don't have any pretensions at all of, of arriving at some clear destination you know, with with any degree of mechanical precision, it's just not that. That's not what we're doing this for, um, and and it may not be possible. But you know, sometimes answering or trying to answer in you know unanswerable questions is uh, is a good way of finding out well what what constitutes an acceptable answer for you. You know what yeah, what yeah. what criteria are you using there? So right, it, it, right. it really is a a, a big adventure. Um, and we yeah, appreciate if, if, people joining us. Yeah, if when I was talking, you know, I ramble and it gets confusing or whatever, just realize that the value is actually in the questions that Chris was asking. So those are what you want to meditate on, <laughs> less, less so than me. But um, yes, this story. I'd love uh, to hear it. Let's go. Okay. As they say, this is a, this is a true story. Uh, Dave and I have been talking about creatures like Bigfoot, and the Yeti, you know, the abominable snowman. Well, in, in sixth grade, uh, I was tasked with writing uh, a play. And the deal was the teacher assigned uh, students to, to work with in a group. And you had to use everybody. So the play I ended up writing had to include and have parts for everyone in my, my team. And uh, I called it the Abominable Mountains, and it was, of course, a, a, a melodrama. You know, I'm, I'm 11 years old, it's sixth grade. And the idea was that three scientists go off into the Himalayas with three very different objectives. And they have a Sherpa guide, and off they go. Well, one scientist is an idealist and really believes in the abominable snowman and feels that this is a secret that could open up whole new understandings of evolution on the planet. One scientist hates the first scientist and really would like to see that scientist fall in a crevasse and never return. And the third scientist appears to be a very progressive, environmentally friendly person, but really wants to capture the Yeti and bring it back to civilization, rather like King Kong. And so I, I crafted this thing, and I was gifted with one just absolutely fantastic performer, uh, Jorge. He was recently arrived from Mexico. His English wasn't good, but he was a natural athlete, and he was from a family of serious Mexican circus performing acrobats. He could do a standing backflip. He was a contortionist. He was just on top of it. 
and he played the Yeti. And wow, talk about the flamboyance and just the energy. He did his own costume. He had this white sort of uh, jumpsuit, monkey suit, garage, you know, coverall thing. And he got a pair of ski goggles and he was just insane. Perfect. But my problem was a kid named Jeff. He was a white dude, but he was not like any white kids that from my school. We were a very multicultural school. Jeff was like a Saxon from a different part of the country, a different part of the world. <laughs> he was a military brat. He had never been anywhere very long. He was a real loner. He managed to survive because he was just an awesome fighter. He was just absolutely scary. And he had mood disorder problems. There was no question he was on the spectrum. I think, I don't know, I personally thought he was maybe the victim of, of child abuse. He was a very, very difficult kid. He's a good athlete. Outside the class, he kind of came to life. But inside a classroom, he just didn't say anything. And our teacher just didn't try anymore with him. And I personally thought she assigned him to me because she was as a kind of a challenge. And I thought, God, what can I do with Jeff? I've got to get, you know, I can't, he can't be another Yeti. You know, that, that diminishes what Jorge is, is doing with his character. And it just, I really struggled with it. And then one day it hit me. I thought, you know, this play needs a kind of a narrator, but not a hokey narrator actually telling the story, because we want to act that out. But I thought, what is the essential atmospheric element of the Himalayas and darkness coming down and snow falling and maybe the Yeti appearing? Because the scientists end up getting trapped and the Yeti has to come actually and save them. And I realized that Jeff could play the wind. Mm. And I approached him out on the uh, playground and I thought, I don't know, I thought he was just going to shake his head and just say, no, man, I, I, I'm not going to do it. But his eyes lit up. He actually looked me in the eye and he said, I, I can do that. And damn it, if he didn't, he came with, like Hori, with his own costume. He had this tent wrapped around him like a robe, but pulled up over his head so you couldn't quite see his face. And he had a couple of noise-making things that he, you know, pulled out of the garage or whatever. But mainly he just vocalized. And it was so haunting our teacher, who had just given up on him entirely, just she stood up and couldn't sit down for the whole rest of the class period. It was so moving because that's what he was. He was as lonely as the wind. And I think back on that, I think of, of all of my creative uh, efforts, I think that might be the one I'm most proud of. 